This is Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. Welcome, 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 party people. The Stark Reality. And by the way, you are listening to Stark Reality in the background. That is the name of that group. Anyways, this is a podcast about music, things going on in the world, generally from a leftist perspective. My name is Jim Deere, small change. I've uh, been selecting records for a while, so you may hear a lot of interviews with DJs. But we also are going to just talk to all kinds of people about all kinds of things. That's the general idea. Let's not define it too much. Anyways, we're going to kick it off with uh, longtime Bay Area DJ Sake One, Stefan Goldstone, who is pretty hilarious in general online. Quality ship posts. And is an excellent legendary DJ. And also has some uh, very righteous politics. Which we're going to explore all of that, talking about gentrification. He was actually on the same trip to Israel as Rachel Corey back in the day, which I didn't even realize. And of course his brother Adam Goldstone, who passed a few years back, was an old friend of mine. So, Stefan, Saquon, Good People's interview runs for about 50 minutes, followed by the Saquon Kauai Getaway, but you can never really get away, can you? 2019 music sampler. Just a little playlist. Whole thing runs about an hour and 20 minutes. Hope you enjoy. Stark Reality Episode 1. Small Change with Sake 1. from San Francisco. Sake one, not sake one, people. Get it straight. Yeah. Uh, cake. Though I guess that's been the chagrin of some Japanese tourists that have tried to uh, visit you, right? Yeah, not recently, but uh, yeah, about maybe 10 years ago, there was a string of, uh, I had a few gigs in San Francisco and there was a string of Japanese tourists who saw my name on a flyer. Um, I think it was maybe more a function of the paper flyer era when like, you know, paper flyers would get posted or indiscriminately handed out to people in like, you know, high traffic areas. Right. Uh, right. Versus social media, social media where you can sort of like, you can vet, vet who's doing yeah, you what. You can vet the people easier. now. This is like pre-Instagram then, right? <laughs> yeah. Pre-Instagram. So like the paper flyers, people would just see a name and you know, there were a lot of, there was a lot of Japanese tourism in San Francisco back then. And, um, people would be like, Oh, they, I, my assumption is that, they assumed I was Japanese or a Japanese expatriate or something, something along those lines. And uh, yeah, I had several, several situations where they showed up asking for Saki one, and I said, "Oh, that's me." And they just had, sort of had a disappointed look on their face and said, "Oh," and, and left. Yeah, no, that's too much. But you have been, um, you've been a uh, real a Bay Area staple for many, many years, including in your apartment, your same apartment for twenty years. 
which is kind of nuts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's the uh, the gift and the curse of rent control. I have rent control. Um, San Francisco has fairly strong rent control laws, although that hasn't really been able to make a big impact on the uh, economic sort of watching of the city and its gentrification. But there's strong there's strong rent control here, and uh, as a result of that, I. I have a good price at the re- at the apartment. I stay at an affordable rent, but also I can never ever leave because if I leave, I'll literally have to leave the entire Bay Area. So it's sort of the yeah, uh, the, that's, gift and the, cur- the gift and the curse of rent control. No, that seems to be the kind of the reality. It's like if you're going to leave and you have some sort of spot like that, especially in the Bay. Like I, I felt like for a while, maybe in the mid '90s, for a minute, the Bay and and New York were sort of semi equal in price. But then, of course, with you know, not having the same amount of housing in San Francisco and the whole tech boom. It's just, I think it's probably one of the more crazier, you know, cities in the country with that kind of gentrification and just crazy rents. <laughs> I mean, I don't understand yeah, I how, it, how artists, yeah. I mean, I, I, saw, I remember reading some article and this was several years back about how, uh, you know, the teachers couldn't even afford to live in there and they were talking about getting special housing for teachers because even the, they couldn't, find people to teach the public schools that could actually live in the city. Yeah. And it, which kind of shows the sort of like, uh, ideological quagmire of sort of like progressive, progressive administrations in cities. It's like, rather than, uh, actually address the issue, which is like housing out of control and developers basically controlling the city. We're just going to like create a, a fund so we can build housing just for teachers, which doesn't address the issue because, yeah, you're creating some housing that's designated for teachers that'll keep some teachers here, but there are 30 other professions that, that serve San Francisco that can't afford to live here. So it's not really addressing the root cause of the problem, which is that people that work regular jobs, if you're, if you, I think the, uh, the poverty line in San Francisco is designated as anything below that where you can't get your basic necessities meet, met, which is, you know, housing, food, transportation. And it was estimated around $89,000, I think, about five years ago. Which is kind of nuts. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's insane to think that the poverty line is now probably over six figures uh, in San Francisco. Um, but yeah, a large, a large part of that is housing. But I mean, as, as in New York, when when the you know when the the average salary of the average uh, resident goes up then the entire cost of living goes up transportation food everything goes gets higher so um yeah there's people here are living under a lot of pressure um many people most people are living under a lot of pressure a lot of uh, anxiety about housing and costs um which makes the job as a dj someone who in the best case scenario you know, addressing some of those issues through music helps people feel less anxiety, helps people dance away stress, dance away pain. It makes makes it that much more high stakes and important. Yeah, I mean, uh, and this is kind of like, I mean, this is sort of the idea of uh, this podcast is kind of, you know, obviously I see you on social media a lot, but just posting a lot about politics, but also kind of coming from a music background and, uh, that's something that I see you kind of mix your posts between just random shit posts on rappers you like or don't like, and then also just <laughs> yeah. random poems about how you're about to uh, move away from San Francisco and telling your mom, which shouts to your parents, too. And, of course, your brother, yeah. R.I.P., you know. R.I.P. to Adam, yeah, who uh, got, he got 
he saw it coming. He left the minute he graduated um, in 1987. But yeah, um, my parents are still here hanging on. My sister's in LA. But yeah, I mean, it, uh, yeah, those ly- that poem was actually the lyrics from the song um, "The Town I Live In," uh, which is a you know sort of like a '60s low rider classic. But I was listening, I was listening to it and was listening to the lyrics and um, was re- was struck by how much the lyrics could be sort of like metaphor for gentrification in the in the song he's really talking about how he's heartbroken and the girl he loves uh doesn't love him back so that he doesn't feel at home in the city that he's in but you know that's you know sort of like this easy metaphor for when the girl you love or the person you love is the city you grew up in and doesn't doesn't love you back anymore and it's sort of like feelings of alienation that that can that can bring about yeah well it must be tricky because i know that you really i mean I I knew your brother obviously Adam uh, for many years, but uh, you came up and I I actually found this out because I was listening to a few older interviews. Is that uh, you were actually DJing before him, even though he was collecting records? So I didn't even really realize that. Yeah, it was weird. I don't think my DJing had an impact on him DJing, but he definitely his music here. I mean, some of my earliest memories of me of really. I mean, I was a kid who grew up in San Francisco and was attracted to rap. I was, you know, of the age that in the late 70s and early 80s, when I was, you know, hitting my teens, mid-80s, late-80s, um, you know, UTFO, LL Cool J, uh, Beastie Boys, all that stuff was what was, pop, was popular in my, in my age demographic. Um, but my brother, I remember, he was getting records delivered to our house. Uh, Prince Buster was one of the first records I remember him getting delivered, and I was like, "What is that?" I thought that was Prince, you know, the the the, the pop singer Prince from Minneapolis. He's like, no, this is Prince <laughs> Buster. This guy's from Jamaica. Um, there's this Jamaican music called ska. My brother was sort of like a you know like a formative mod, so he was into a lot of like ska and rock steady music, um, as well as like R and B and rap and all that stuff. So. He definitely, once he moved to New York and got sort of like ensconced in the underground dancing and disco and hip hop, um, and was sending me, you know, tapes of uh, Red Alert show on Kiss FM, sending me live recordings from Larry Levan at the Paradise Garage. That's amazing. Was really, I was really lucky because I was exposed to not just underground hip hop from New York, which at that time was obviously the center of all that, but underground house and disco music, which none of my friends were up on. Um, nor did they care about. Um, so I'm I'm really thankful for the for the musical education that Adam gave me. But yeah, at that time, uh, he really was just sort of like collecting records, very specifically, very specific records and very specific music. And I think it was his uh, his dislike of like touching the records. He, they were so precious that he didn't like to touch them. And I, and I think. I think in that context, the thought of like DJing, where you have to repeatedly touch and, and manipulate and molest your records, freaks him out. So he wasn't he wasn't willing to take that step yet. Um, yeah, but I was more than willing to. So I yeah, I started DJing, and then he he wound up starting later. But by that time, he already had a, an incredible collection, and I think he was, I think one of his first big gigs. I was reading uh, this article about Junior Vasquez, who was the resident DJ at Sound Factory. Yeah, I, I yeah, I heard a lot about that party actually. Yeah, and I believe uh, Junior tapped my brother to be the resident at Sound Factory Bar, which was either an off night at the same venue or was like a, an affiliated venue at the same time. Um, but I remember that was my brother's first big residency because he was he hung out at Paradise Garage, but um, he sort of caught the tail end of it. My brother moved out there in 87, and I think that was the last year 
for Paradise Garage. So as a as Sound Factory sort of came into being as sort of like seen as the heir to Paradise Garage or the next the next move for sort of like the underground disco and house scene in the Bay in uh, in New York. My brother that was one of his first big residencies, I believe. I wish he was here so I could confirm or deny that. But I guess Junior's still around, so we could ask him. Yeah, no doubt. And obviously, you have your own history in the Bay throwing a, a number of parties over the years and uh, even teaching DJs, right? You do some of that? Yeah, yeah. Um, teaching, we started a, 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 a youth arts activism and arts center in 1999 called the Mandela Arts Center in West Oakland. And the goal of that was really to sort of like popularized DJing, which at that time, it's hard for people to believe now since literally everybody is a DJ. But back then, DJing was sort of like a, this thing that required a high level of technical skill, high level of training, high level, you'd had to have a certain amount you of money. You had to buy to stuff. And mixer. <laughs> yeah, it was something that like a lot of poor kids didn't really have access to um, in the same way. Right. So we decided to, you know, to make it sort of a democratic thing and to bring more people into the DJing fold and not just sort of have this replication of like middle class kids like myself DJing to, um, to open up a DJ school in West Oakland. So we were teaching kids there. A lot of those kids are still around and still, still DJing. And then, yeah, I've had other other gigs over the years teaching people to DJ. Um, but it's been sort of like a formalized thing, like for uh, the Blue Bears Music School here um, or sort of like young people that I know that have expressed an interest to learn where I just sort of like go to the house and teach them or they come to my house because I've always felt that, you know, it's a, it's a privilege to be able to do that. And a lot of that was the ability to have a middle-class background and to be able to buy turntables as a teenager. And so that, that gives me a responsibility to give some of that back to people that that's maybe a, don't have the same. No, that's a, that's a really, really good point. That's a really good point. It actually that that sometimes the means and sometimes I think, you know, especially as uh, vinyl was kind of transitioning to Serato for probably more club DJs and stuff like that. Obviously, a lot of vintage vinyl DJs still play vinyl, but you know, I, then there was and there were still those kind of arguments about oh, vinyl and purism and all that stuff. But it kind of does make it more democratic, you know, in a way where it doesn't cost as much to be a DJ. And of course, you can hate on, you know, people kind of coming up and there's maybe more DJs now that maybe don't know how to plug in a mixer or, you know, whatever. You always see those Facebook posts right, about, like, not, I, I mean, that's not, I, I'm not going to lend you my headphones, learn how to DJ kind of thing, but it, it does make it right, more, yeah. I, do, I think it does make it more democratic, demo, you know, democratic overall, which is a, a good look. Yeah. And I think, and I think, and I think what the, one of the most noticeable ways that we've seen that is the amount of women that are prominent DJs now. Right. Um, whereas I feel like that was a much smaller, percentage of DJs in the 90s and early 2000s, I feel like now. Like and in the 80s, almost of... non-existent, even though there was DJs in the 80s less than, you know, now, obviously, but very, very few female DJs in the 80s, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that has something to do with that. Democratization, the, digi the digitalization of DJing has made it less sort of like about carrying heavy equipment and, you know, Obviously, the socialization issues of men and women who 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 socialize to feel comfortable manipulating and using technology. Um, but yeah, it's, I think it's for the better. I think it's for the better betterment of music and betterment for the craft of DJing. Then more people are doing it, not less people. So yeah, um, and yeah, just and just like you know, like I was uh, listening to a few older interviews that you'd given, and you were saying how you were coming up. 
you had one turntable again going to even that theory that a lot of djs do start out like not even sometimes being able to buy both turntables at once and you were you said you were mixing records to the radio that's how you learned to beat match with one turntable right? yeah because um, i had one turntable so i would i would wait for the mix shows to come on the local uh hip-hop station on KML, and they would have this nine o'clock mix series every night where the dj would mix for 45 minutes from 9 to 9 45 so that was an opportunity for me to have one consistent sort of like tempo where i can practice mixing too so i was just really just you know using one turntable and mixing mixing a record over another mix it's a really it was a weird, weird way to learn but that was kind of how i got how i learned how to beat that oh that's crazy that's crazy and yeah. uh, and uh, but i mean it's kind of nice that now you can have people that can go to dj schools or even like yourself be taught i mean so i think that that's nice that at least that's out there as an option for people you know it's, it's nice there's a really weird and sort of like not so cool uh lining to that or underside right, that right. here i guess in san, in san francisco there's a lot of these like twitter employees that have like endless money that will uh hire someone to like come give them like one-on-one dj lessons right right they will like sort of declare themselves a dj and because they have so much money and so much access and also what i've heard is happening is that they're paying venues to have them to let them dj adverse which is a so it's kind of like the the pay-to-play thing that you see with you see that with bands and venues in new york sometimes which is corny as hell but i have not even heard that on the dj level that's kind of nuts yeah, I haven't heard it a lot, and I hopefully it's not going to become a trend, but it's like, you know. Yeah, because we don't get paid enough like, as uh, it is. Come on. <laughs> we have to pay to like play? Douchebags with, douche with money, you, you think that like almost nothing's impossible. And I've heard that there are some like sort of like tech bros out here, as we call them, that are uh, paying to get gigs at, uh, at bars. Like they're basically telling the bar, if you let me DJ here, I'll give you like $300. And then, I mean, it makes no sense because they're inviting their friends who are coming down and spending money at the bar. They, they, these DJs should be getting paid, but it's obviously driving down the real wages of hardworking DJs. And, you know, there's been a lot of sort of like recent sort of like stuff going on about the working DJ and who defines what a working DJ is. There was this big thing between, uh, Rockthecon, DJ Rockthecon, I guess. And like, uh, uh, DJ, some DJ, some A track. I guess he kind of went at A track because A track had defended the working DJ and Rockthecon was kind of like, "You're not a working DJ. You're a celebrity DJ." And there was like all this, you know, this <laughs> sort of like back and forth about what the, what defines an actual working DJ. But I think everyone can agree that anyone paying a bar to DJ at the bar is hurting, hurting, hurting the working DJ, no matter how you define that. So, yeah, no doubt. And then in talking about DJing. Uh you know, itself, because I know that you obviously, you know, you've been DJing for a long time, you have a lot of crazy records, but then you also do a lot of dance parties, you do a lot of weekend parties, so... Yeah. You know, I mean, I if you want to speak up on kind of, like, the concept of sometimes you can't always play all the records you love, like, I think I heard you in an interview talking about, you know, Gil Scott Heron, but you can't necessarily play that at peak time, even though all those records are great, you're sort of a time and place, and that's kind of your role as a DJ, I guess, to just make sure people yeah. are moving. I mean, my, I feel like my role, I feel like the main role of any DJ is to break records. I feel like that's the number one role of a DJ. Whether that's an old record that you've discovered, whether that's a break that no other DJs are up on, whether that's a new song that's coming out. 
I think that that's what a DJ should always strive to do is to break records, to play new music, to expose people um, to songs that they're not familiar with, and through that, use music as a way for people to access emotions and feelings and energies, to use the kind of a hippie word, like that they're not normally experiencing, um, which is why people go to go to nightclubs. And I think that to keep nightclubs and to keep dance spaces and spaces where people dance and listen to music collectively relevant, the DJ's role is extremely important within that in terms of helping people access new music, new sounds, new vibrations, new energies, um, and paying attention to all the different extreme energies that can happen in a nightclub scenario. That being said, um, there are there are a million different ways that a DJ can sort of like expose and express and interact with people with, with music and it doesn't always have to be in a nightclub. So I think if a DJ looks at a nightclub as the only way that they can educate people about music then they're being short-sighted. We have all these social media sites, we have music streaming sites, you can compile playlists, you can make mixes and instantly upload them uh, whereas, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you yeah, had to, to press, yeah, CDs press a CD get the CDs or, out or a tape before that Yeah, or I mean, there's so many ways to expose people to music that I think to look at the nightclub and your live set as the only place to sort of break records and to expose people to, whether it's Gil Scott Heron or whether it's a new song by a rapper that's from your community, um, I think that's short-sighted. And I think we, as DJs, we should all be using all the different avenues we have to talk about music, to talk about issues related to music, whether it's problematic musicians like R. Kelly, um, whether it's problematic uh, situations in nightclubs like sexism and sex or sexual harassment and sexual assault in nightclubs. Um, and whether it's the more positive stuff like blending of genres of music, um, new genres of music that are sort of like coming out and being um, being expanded upon and being built upon. I think that the DJs always need to like speak with, I think more than ever, we need to speak with more than just our hands and our nightclub sets. Or if we're, if we're using our hands, we should use them also for typing on social media and different different realms where we interact and not just, you know, sort of like manipulating records in a nice one. Yeah, I mean, that's something that you do. And, uh, and you, you know, uh, you, you, you study, like, you have a master's in social work, right? Yeah. Although I don't always know what to do with DJing, but I, you know, I, I try to think of them as, like, you know, things that can be complementary. Right, right. Well, maybe it's kind of like if you're kind of trying to get in tune with someone that might be having issues. I mean, not that not to get get too hippie or corny, but maybe that's sort of a way like reading a crowd in a nightclub. You're kind of reading a person to a certain degree. Yeah, reading a vibe, and uh, you know, maybe in some ways being a healer. In some in some ways, you know, I think that's something I strive to be. I don't know that I'm always good at that. Um, <laughs> I, I, but but yeah, I mean, I, I think like thinking of a way. Uh, to, to be a healer, to like find ways that can that can unite people around issues, and can also unite people around feelings and vibrations and sounds. Um, I do 100% believe that um, sound and vibration. I mean, it's been scientifically studied the 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 the, the way the role that vibration plays in affecting your neurotransmitters and your neuroanatomy. Um, it does affect our brain. So I think any DJ that goes into that kind of stuff, or any social worker that goes into that work, thinking that like vibrations of some hippy dippy shit that don't matter they absolutely do matter um and it's been scientifically studied and scientifically proven well that's the thing also about music it's like would you be hanging out in a nightclub if it wasn't for the music that was something i also 
heard you say in an interview that it's not really about the alcohol or the girls. It really, that's why you keep doing it. I mean, that's why we're all still doing it. It's just a love of music, you know? Well, it's interesting. And as I get older and more sort of woke and talk to more people, I find that like, and you know, things have changed. The nightclub is no longer as much of an underground refuge as it was. Like, you know, I just watched the, uh, the Studio 54 documentary on Netflix and, you know, Studio 54, you know, for many people was sort of like the anti-Paradise Garage. And, That's true. You know, so yeah, it's the more bling version of all that scene, basically. Yeah, but, but you know, they talked about for women and for gay people, like, that it was a place that they could come and be sexual and express themselves without being judged or being physically at risk. Um, and I think that, like, those, those, those things that made the nightclub a refuge and a safe space and a sacred space, um, and now I talk to people and I feel like people come to the nightclub for the music, whereas like there's all these other things that are pushed that make them not want to come to the nightclub, but they're like, well, I still come because of the music and because of the DJs. Um, and I, I really want to be part of bringing, bringing back that place of nightclubs as sort of like a healing space and a sacred space and a transformative space rather than a space that like people come despite all these other things that make it not cool, like getting grabbed at or, or the, the door music being or incredibly mainstream or yeah. dumbed down. Um, you know, I, I value the, what, what like the role that they used to serve. And maybe it's, maybe it's naive to think that we could have that again because music has changed and how we, how we assimilate music has changed, but I would hope I want to be part of maybe trying to bring some of that underground vibe back and making, nightclubs that aren't a space that everyone goes to but a space that those that really need that that need that space can go and feel safe and be transformed right right um in terms of uh you know putting together your sets and stuff because uh it's just that's the other thing too with djing digitally now instead of carrying like one crate you can carry like a thousand crates essentially and uh yeah. so it does like how much does like organization and all that stuff that must you know, again, play like a big role. Cause I think I, you mentioned something in an interview and this has definitely happened to me sometimes when I don't pull enough stuff where it's like, you can kind of blank out because you got to dance, you know, dance floor in front of you. And then if you're like, Oh, wait a minute, I need to figure out what to play next. <laughs> you know? And, uh, well, for, for me, yeah, for me, that's a direct result of having too much access digitally. Um, like when I don't organize my crates in, in, exactly. a, in specific ways for gigs, which I can sometimes do out of being lonely or I mean, out of being a uh, busy or out of being um, just lazy. Right. Um, yeah. You can have people dancing like, what do I play next? And then you look in your Serato crates and you have literally 30,000 songs and it right. can be hard to like narrow it down to this is the song I need to play next. Um and one thing that uh, Shortcut mentioned too once years ago, he's a you know legendary DJ from San Francisco. Yeah, shots was, uh, of Shortcut. When you had vinyl, um, you turned your back to the crowd. It was like a magician who was like turning around <laughs> and was pulling another record from the crate oh, and was true. turning back around to the crowd. You know, it's like funny to think of it in that context, but um, you, you with 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 Serato with digital DJing, you never turn your back to the crowd, and there can be sort of like this glaze that comes over you because you never take it's like having a conversation with someone and there's no you don't stop and like take a sip of water or look down at your phone or you know you can it can it can sort of become overwhelming um without taking short breaks uh whether it's like a wellness check or focusing on your breathing or just sort of like remembering that you're in a space that you know 
being in the moment, the being in the moment a little bit, you know? Yeah. It's like when you're constantly looking at the crowd, the crowd's looking at you and dancing at you or dancing with you. Um, and you don't have that break of turning around to select a record from your a vinyl record from your, from your record, bo- record box. Um, it's a different kind of, it's a different kind of thing. And especially for those of us like you and me that came up in the vinyl era, it can be sometimes hard to adjust even after, you know, I've been on digital DJing for over 10 years now, I'm close to 15. Um, and yeah, it's, you know, but I, but I definitely learned and I did my first 10 to 15 years in, on vinyl. So it, it can sometimes be weird to yeah, I think, not have a break. Well, I think the difference in that is that, you know, when you, had a vinyl set you obviously picked those records you know and you had a limited so it wasn't you know you had like 30,000 songs you might have had 300 songs or 400 songs that you're right. gonna you could, you kind of so it's sort of but it does make you kind of sort of focus in and I do think that you know sometimes as I do you know beyond just even organizing uh things just making playlists for specific parties just because I kind of try to think of it as like well this is my vinyl crate and obviously you're still going to have your hard drive and lots of extra songs but just sometimes yeah. thinking of it as a sense of like all right let me just try to see how much I can stay within this playlist as if I pick these records for a, a gig you know yeah with the vinyl with the vinyl crate that was what you had so you had to commit to it if, if it wasn't working you didn't right. have it wasn't like <laughs> yeah, exactly. go get it's like what it wasn't like you could run and get another box of vinyl so you it's a different kind of approach to DJing because if you're like well the people aren't really feeling this disco set that I brought to this club they want hip hop but that's all you bought um, you have to figure out how to make them feel the make disco it work set. exactly yeah you have to figure out a way to make it work and um it's this level of commitment that I think sometimes with digitally, you're like, eh, whatever, I can play whatever. Okay, it, it makes it easier to backtrack. And right. It makes it easier to be not as sort of like deeply committed to the set that you're playing because at any given time, you're free to like go into a whole other genre um, or a whole other vibe um, or a whole other crate that you have, a digital crate. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes, I, you know, that, those, those, we've all had those situations as old school DJs where we had the wrong records for the crowd, or oh, we, definitely. it just wasn't the right song. <laughs> definitely. And uh, but those, but those nights made us better as DJs because we had to figure out how to get through that two hour set. Exactly. And try to and try to finesse it and try to make it work. Set. Exactly. Yeah, and those that's what makes you great as a DJ. It doesn't take any skill to be uh, requesting reggae. I'm gonna go play some reggae. You know what I mean? Like it's where it takes a lot of skill to make. A reggae crowd feel get into the hip hop that you buy. You know what I mean? So exactly. We've all had that, and those those I definitely they were difficult situations, but I'm thankful because they made me better as a DJ. Well, let's talk about politics for a little bit because I know you post a lot about politics, and that's part of the reason I I wanted to get you on this uh, podcast. Um, Okay. Just uh, a little bit because I know you post a lot about Israel and Palestine. How long have you been kind of following that? situation for a while um well i'm jewish so the israel thing has always been something that's been sort of like part of my upbringing and my it's been around but it's something that i think a lot of jewish people get taught well israel's our homeland and you know that's what that is um but from a very young i was raised in a pretty with pretty progressive parents uh they weren't necessarily not zionist but uh i think that they were open to talking about in the treatment of Palestinian people. Um, and they were more than anything more open and encouraging of us to sort of like study and learn ourselves. Um, 
and my process of studying and learning um, led me to some uncomfortable truths about Israel, and then uh, further study to sort of learn and discover what the history of Zionism was, which was uh, the ideology that gave birth to the state of Israel, and realized that it wasn't something that, like, all Jews agreed on. It wasn't something that benefited all Jews, and it certainly was something that absolutely um, displaced people that were already on the land of Palestine, which is now called Israel. Um, so as early as my teens, I was already aware of and outspoken about that. Um, in 2003, I participated in a direct action group in Palestine called ISN, the International Solidarity Movement, where I went to Palestine and we actually laid down and sat in front of tanks and attempted to stop home demolitions in Palestine, in the West Bank, and in Gaza. Um, wow, I had no idea. A, uh, That's crazy. Yeah, there was a, a noted, uh, there was actually one of the ISM activists who we went with, and she stayed, named Rachel Corey, was actually murdered about a month after I left. Wow. She was, uh, bulldo she was bulldozed by an, an Israeli bulldozer as she was trying to attempt them from demolishing a Palestinian house. So yeah, that's actually, I, uh, that's a really crazy, famous, documented incident. So you were there around the same yeah. time that Rachel Corey was there. Yeah, we went with sort of the same delegation, and she wow. stayed. But she stayed, I stayed for about three weeks, and she wound up staying for like two or three months. And so about a month after I let, went home, she was killed. And my parents were like, they didn't want me to go. They're like, you're going to get killed. IDF is crazy. You're tripping. <laughs> oh, man. Um, and I, I mean, was they like, are crazy. They are crazy. They, yeah, but I definitely, yeah, I had a lot of experiences there that I, where I feel like they were definitely trying to, they weren't shooting near us, they were shooting at us. Um, you know, hearing like bullet shells whistle past my ear as we were peacefully sort of like occupying an olive, an olive orchard to try to prevent, to try to allow Palestinians to basically continue their subsistence practice of olive farming. Um, yeah, because that's a, that's like, a noted they, thing. You no, have, we're not. I, was gonna, I didn't yeah. mean to interrupt. So I, not, just like Israeli settlers uh, cutting down olive trees all the time. That's a major thing out there. Yeah, so I think my trip in 2003 was a was a big transformative moment for me for seeing firsthand the the level of sort of just like violent repression and racism and talking with Israelis and hearing them use words like calling Palestinians dirty and filthy um, and it just I was like, this is, must have been what it was like for activists, you know, black and white activists in the South that were sort of like opposing uh, Jim Crow segregation in the 60s, the so-called Freedom Riders. Uh, this must have been similar to what they experienced. And um, many people have called the Israeli-Palestinian issue, you know, the key human rights and civil rights issue of our time. And I agree. And this is why many of my political views tend to veer from sort of like, you know, a lot of the stuff we engage with, we engage in on, on online about sort of like Democrats versus Republicans and progressive, progressive Democrats versus liberal Democrats. To me, as long as none of them are really taking a stand against Palestine, I, I have trouble supporting any of them as I see it as the key human rights issue of our time. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a pretty uh, basic litmus test you know, it's like, because to me, Israel is it's so obvious that it's an apartheid. And, and as many people, including myself, say, it's, you can't even say that apartheid is enough. It's apartheid and genocidal. And so to, to, stand, yeah. to stand against the Palestinians, it's like, what the fuck, man? 
what kind of human being? Are yeah, you? and then and, and <laughs> but then but then but then also we have this situation where, in at least that on a on a federal level, there really has been no major candidate for president on either party that has opposed Israeli apartheid and settler colonialism in Palestine. So that has created a, a particular kind of, based on my experiences and my beliefs, it's been difficult for me to engage with people on the political level that are sort of like, you know, yes, a lot of what Bernie Sanders' political beliefs are are great. He has a lot of great beliefs, and he and we, we are under fat, a, a level of fascism right now in the country. But for me, personally, it's very difficult to support any candidate that doesn't get that the very basic level of power that APAC has and that Israeli and Zionist interests have in the in the Democratic Party and in the U.S. government on both sides, um, that that needs to be stopped. Um, and until that point, it's going to be really difficult for me to be supportive of any of any of any mainstream Democratic uh, or any other party presidential candidate. I will say that there have been Green Party candidates that have opposed uh, Zionism, um, and I have been willing to support some of those some of those some of those candidates. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think in particular I've been following uh, was a, a Jammu Baraka who was the VP on the Green Ticket, and he's really good on Twitter. He's, I think it, it yeah, it, he's great. It, it comes down to like anti-imperialism, and that's the problem with someone like Bernie. As, as much as the you know he probably would be the person that I would you know would vote for if if need be, just for healthcare and and other domestic social issues. But that's it. They're domestically. Yeah maybe a bit more progressive, but then in terms of the actual real world, they're still going to run the American empire if latently, which is why I call yep. him a latent imperialist as opposed to a fascist. Like he'll, he'll shrug yep. his shoulders yep. and shuffle his feet. But you know, it's like, if you look at Bernie's statements on Maduro, for example, which to me is another basic litmus test. Like if you can't figure yep. out that Venezuela is a coup again, another basic, basic litmus test for you know, leftists. It's just. And what, what did where's what's his what's what's Bernie's position been on Colombia? I haven't seen. Well, I mean, on Venezuela. Uh, he's just he's he's not been as bad. Like you know, it's just he's latent imperialist. He doesn't think that you know we should invade, but Maduro is corrupt. So he kind of like almost sounds like some of our liberal Facebook friends, where it's like, right, you know, but Maduro is corrupt, which I think is just an incredibly whatever white or very western thing to say <laughs> you know if you're yeah. basing all your information on western mainstream media and we just saw how russiagate turned out so yeah maybe they might be yeah. they might be wrong on Venezuela yeah. too maybe <laughs> yeah i do it's just like it, it's amazing to me how you know it, we we went through this i went through this with the invasion of libya and uh you know all my really progressive friends my parents were like Yes, you know, we agree with you. Generally, U.S. intervention is bad, but this guy is but really, this time. really bad. But this time. Yeah, but this guy. <laughs> and, then we always, and then we always find out, you know, like years later that a lot of that, all that, all or most of it was fabricated. Uh, we, we see what's going on in Libya where basically, you know, they've reinstituted a slave trade there. Yeah, um, chattel slavery. It's insane. Yeah, you know? and it's, it's um, I mean... And there were there were people, including Cynthia McKinney, who was a Green Party candidate in 2008 for president, who had gone to Libya and had warned against that very thing. It basically been said, whatever you think about Gaddafi, he has given sub-Saharan Black Africans positions of power and liberation there that will will be severely tested if he's put out of power. Like they warned against this exact thing happening, and people were like, oh, these radical lefties don't know what they're talking about, and. 
it's come to pass over and over and over again, whether it's been Iraq, whether it's been Libya, whether it's been Vietnam. And, um, and, and doing the and same thing people, as Venezuela. People are, going to, people are always going to sort of like buy the latest fabrication of the Pentagon and like, well, yeah, but this guy's really bad, you know? Um, so... Yeah, yeah I, I think I think there's yeah. a major issue that I think keeps coming up for me is just the concept of American exceptionalism. Like, you know, right. they just it's like people it's who can, can kind of see that Trump is bad. You know, maybe the GOP is sort of bad, though. You have all these liberals already forgiving George Bush. But it's kind of like, yeah, they just they don't really think about America, what it does outside the borders. Like we're still essentially a good country trying to do our best. And it's, it's just, I just think it's like a, it's like a fairy tale. Like we're not a good, we're not good. And, and thus, you we're, know, not we're not good. We're an empire and, and our media, you know, and then people worry about state controlled media, et cetera, et cetera. But then if you look at our media landscape with Russiagate, with Venezuela, when they're just, running down the line basically almost like stenographers for the state department i mean you know what's the difference between state media if you have capitalist media that's just doing the same thing anyway right yeah um yeah i mean i i i would think this is probably gonna freak some people out when they hear it but i was thinking the other night that like we may finally be at a position, a stage in human history when democracy is kind of an outmoded system in terms of at least how we understand it. I think a way that allows people to participate maximally, this idea of sort of like democracy, at least in the Western context, where we sort of like elect people to participate for us, um, might be outmoded. Like it might be, especially in a context of like unfettered capitalism, like those two things don't seem like they can really coexist. Well, um, I think democracy, it's kind of like they just destroy these terms of whatever it means. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I mean, Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. You know, that's how you destroy these terms. Right, right, because right, it's, right. You know, and so I think yeah. even even the concept of fake news that you had a lot of people that were warning us of fake news were producing fake news themselves. You know, you have like Washington, right, yeah. you have like Washington Post. It's like democracy dies in darkness, but then they're warning us that the the Russians have uh, taken over a Vermont power utility, and then three days later, <laughs> literal literal Russians darkness. did not take over. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it just I think what it is is I I just think that you have a lot of people just taking mainstream media and our politicians at face value, and you know especially coming from America and what we've done to other countries, maybe people shouldn't do that. You know, I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, do you want to talk about some other uh, kind of people in the Bay that you you look up to in terms of that kind of activism? I know you're friends with Davey D, who I know is a long-time yeah, hip-hop Dave's activist great. and, um, like, I mean, writer. Yeah. I, 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 I've been mentored by a long... I mean, I've, luckily, I've been really lucky to be in positions where I've received mentorship from a lot of great people. Um, so, I mean, the list is really too long to name, but I mean, in college, really, Angela Davis took me under her wing and I was able to get a lot of mentorship and sort of in a, more on an intellectual level from her. She supported activism, obviously, but um, really sort of like intellectual development and under, understanding what ideology was. And at the particular time when I was studying under her at UC Santa Cruz, understanding the importance of the prison industrial complex in the 90s and the role that that played in sort of like that stage of capitalism. Um, so yeah, she was huge. Uh, 
believe it or not, I, I received an immense amount of mentoring and training from Van Jones, who now, you know, is sort of like a left of center kind of centrist uh, TV talking head. But in the 90s was, you know, in the streets uh, and a big organizer of sort of like radical left uh, activism in the Bay Area. See, and I didn't I know that. That's interesting. Yeah, I'll always be really, really indebted to Van for everything that he taught me, and not just intellectually, but sort of like the in-the-street activism skills that he showed me and community organizing and all that kind of stuff. Um, to this day, whether I agree with his positions now, uh, to this day, by far, this Angela Davis in that, in that because she's brilliant. Um, but Van is just someone who has this unbelievable ability to just like dissect things in really quickly, uh, really fast, just a brilliant, brilliant mind, and hopefully he continues to stay on some semblance of the left side of things because he would right, be a disastrous right, right. weapon in the, in the hands of the enemy. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, you know, and there's yeah, lots. There's just lots of great thinkers out here uh, uh, in queer liberation, uh, women's liberation, um, black and brown liberation. Uh, some activists here in the Bay Area are, are from the Filipino. Uh, liberation movement and expatriates in the Filipino revolutionary movement in the Philippines, uh, the Gabriella Network, organizations like that um, that I've learned a lot from. The Bay Area is a particular mix, um, and I've learned I've, I've been blessed to be, to be raised here, both musically and both we have some of the best DJs in the world here, and also some of the greatest thinkers in political terms. So I feel like my training has been dead eye level, and I'm very thankful for that. What would you suggest, because especially for someone like me, and this is even part of the reason I wanted to start this podcast, is to do a little more than just yell on social media, and I've gone to some protests and even thrown a few benefits, but what do you suggest, or what would have been some of your things that have inspired you in terms of uh, more doing things on the street, in terms of protest or just activism? Um, well, I mean, I think a lot of people are rightfully frustrated with, jaded about sort of like the protest model the sort of like something bad happens and everyone goes into the middle of the street and, and does chant. Um, especially because I think this, the, the state has adapted to that. So the state has figured out a way to allow people to be in the streets protesting and to sort of like scream until they're tired and allow, you know, allow traffic to be blocked on certain areas. So it's basically the adaptation, the hegemony to, to allow, allow people to look like they're doing something radical when they're really not challenging the system at all. Right, um, right which is where I have to give credit to a lot of my anarchist sisters and brothers who as much criticism as they've taken for like destroying property for physically attacking Nazis have not, have not engaged in sort of like in the street activity that allows the system to continue to function as it functions. They, they have done this, they've engaged in activities that disrupt the system and, and stop the status quo. And for that, I think they deserve a lot of credit, even though their actions like can be, threatening or scary to a lot of people um well i think i mean well, I support those. go ahead sorry yeah i support those kind of activities in, in general um as long as they're done responsibly and in a way where other pe the the repercussions aren't coming down on marginalized communities which sometimes can be an issue but um yeah i think we need to think outside of the protest model i think especially for djs and musicians and cultural workers we need to think about ways that not only music and art can be used symbolically to sort of jam the system and disrupt the system, but beyond symbolic usage, ways that like they can actually make the day-to-day -day operations of the status quo of, of empire and imperialism 
be challenged and stop. Um, and I, you know, I'm in my 40s, so I don't know that like I'm, I'm going to be the first person to think of those ways. But I know that the younger activists, DJs, and cultural workers coming up have those kind of brilliant, free-thinking minds, and they see what's already been done, and we'll have a great. I think we'll be able to come up with new modes and new, new, new models for sort of like jamming the system and disrupting the status quo and stopping business as usual and saying like, no, we're not going to accept police gutting down black men in the street. We're not going to accept community members beating up transgender community members in the street. Um, we're not going to accept rape or harassment of women. Um, we're not going to accept the U.S. funding an illegal apartheid regime that's wiping a people off the face of the earth um, and going beyond just saying no on social media and signing move, move on org, uh, you know, uh, petitions or whatever. Protests. Yeah. Petitions and stuff and really moving into things that are actually going to disrupt the system and stop it from moving forward. And that's what we're going to find out what, what, what the system is willing to do to continue itself. Um, and that's when shit's going to get ugly, but that's also when shit's going to get real. Right. Right. Since, you know, you're definitely up on a lot more newer hip-hop than me in general, uh, what do you, who do you think are some people we should look out for in the Bay or West Coast in general, or hip-hop in general, that you're feeling? Um, a new, there's an artist from East Oakland named YMTK uh, who just dropped a new song this week and is dropping an album on April 12th that I really like, and that song is going to be part of my mix. He presents a different side of Bay Area rap, which usually is thought of as sort of like this mobbed out, funked out, kind of like not sample-based music. Um, but I think YMCK brings a different kind of like a, kind of like a, a sound that's kind of more carefree, which is kind of the new Bay Area sound, a little younger, it's a little more party-friendly, um, it's less thugged out, it's less gangster, um, and I'm appreciating a lot of the production quality um, of it. And I'll, and also as a working DJ, a lot of these songs work really well in the club. So I'm appreciating the fact that like we have that here. So yeah, YMCK is someone that I'm really, I'm messing with. Um, there's a soul singer out of Richmond, California named Rayana J, who I really like. Um, there's a bunch of Bay Area artists I'm excited about, but also artists from sort of all over the map in the Bay Area. It's, uh, you know, Lagos, Nigeria that, that I want to sort of like highlight. So, yeah, that's how I'm coming. Nice, nice. And you still do, of course, the uh, Outcast Party. What is that called again? Oh, the Artist Story. Artist Story, yeah, yeah, we exactly. do that. Uh, you, you take yeah, that to different cities, et cetera, right? Yeah. Um, we So far, we're doing it in uh, Oakland once a year, Los Angeles once a year, New York City once a year. We just did it out in New York. It was a fun party. You came. It was good seeing you there. Um, obviously, you know, Outcast makes an incredibly club-friendly uh, sound. So it's a tribute party that not only works well for sort of like digging deep into an artist and sort of like their contemporaries and their affiliated artists and their production house, but really making a party that's fun where people can just dance and scream the lyrics at the top of their lungs. So, but also you know, throwing some exactly B-sides like and stuff. Yeah, it's sort of low-hanging fruit in terms of like curating a, a tribute party. But it's honestly the most fun I have uh, at, at any given time DJing because it's it's a catalog that I love. It's a catalog I was raised on. And I think in a lot of ways, it's an important catalog to think about in terms of where when we look at hip-hop and rap music now, having been born and birthed and really nurtured in New York City and now really finding its, its middle-aged home in Atlanta, 
uh, outcast was really they were really the regime that sort of allowed that that transition to happen um yeah exactly so i think that's like, a good they're, point they're, they're important they're important in that context um yeah and i have a uh, i have a weekly party out in oakland called ultra wave uh you've been doing I that do forever right Youth. yeah we're going on eight years now nice um which for a weekly party is pretty pretty crazy. That's dog years, <laughs> people. By the way, eight that's years. Like, yeah, eight like, years. Yeah. All weekly parties are dog years, so that's that's a long time. Yeah, if you, I mean, if you think that there's you know fifty weeks in a year and eight years, and we're talking about you know four hundred, four hundred, uh, four hundred ultra waves, which is a, that's a lot of additions of one party, um, to keep it sort of like fresh and interesting. Keep it fresh, and, exactly. Yeah, it's anchored by DJ Fuse from Digital Underground, who obviously is a, a legendary DJ in his own right. So. Uh, myself and Willie Mays, another DJ from out here, sort of chip in and support views on that on that endeavor, and that's every Thursday night out here. And then you know, you can catch me here and there in the mix as <laughs> as needed and as called upon. Well, I really appreciate your time and uh, and your thoughts, and uh, you know, all your quality shit posts on Facebook. You're 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 hilarious. <laughs> Thank too, you. Man. I, pre- I appreciate you. Absolutely, I appreciate you, brother. Thank you for everything, man. Um, it was it was an honor to be interviewed on your podcast. Thank you. No, no doubt. So uh, we'll follow with some uh, tracks selected by Sake. I mean, Sake. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, terrible. But anyways, shouts to you, sir. Shouts to your brother. Shouts to your fine parents. And uh, hopefully we'll cross paths soon. Yeah, I'll see you soon, man. Let's get into this music. A free Willy production. Take one. Rolling. Now the mercy. Hey. Girl, I know you saw the lipstick stains on my shirt color last night. Still, you humble. You never utter a word. You never put up a fight. Lady, you know. No matter where we go, no matter where we do, you are my boo. Baby, you know. No one could ever take the place of you. My love is so true. I could have never done it back. Every girl I wrote me see, I'm on one. Crazy are the days without you close to my heart. All you in me, I'm set up. I dance, allow me, so a friend sign me. Shine, baby, no, 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 one. How can I tell her I know one shots perform? Baby, don't argue, only love keep calm. This is a good thing that we've got going on. Hear me out. No, I know you saw the lipstick stain on my shirt color last night. But you never argue, baby, no, you never put up a fight. Cause, lady, you know, no matter where we go, no matter where we do, you are my boo. And, baby, you should know, no one could ever take the place of you. This love is so true. Send relationship, I beg you, don't sink with. Hold on for me, baby, never let your love drift. Never follow those friends and act foolish. Remember, no man, no God, so no man, no perfect. Married your girl, turn your in on me. Cause you know, no matter where we go, no matter where we do, you are my boo, lady, you know, no one could ever take the place of you, hear me out, hear me out. Girl, I know you saw the lipstick stain on my shirt on the last night, still you humble, you never utter a word, you never put up a fight, cause baby, you know, no matter where we go, no matter where we do, you are my boo, lady, you know. 
could ever take the place of you. This love is so true. Who don't ever gallivant? I know every woman on road may see I'm on one. Crazy on the guys without you close to my heart. All the enemy I'm sent up I dance allow me so some friends sign me shirt on in on Nagram. How can I tell her I'm no worse man profound? Hear me out. Who do lie to your baby? Just like that. Treat your body right, baby. Keep that fat. Love you, baby. Just like that. 24 hours. <laughs> Lady, you know. No matter where we go, no matter where we do. You are my boo. And baby, you should know. No one could ever take the place of you. This love is so true. Send relationship. I beg you don't sink with. What love for me, baby? Never let your love trip. Never follow those friends and Remember the man of God, so no man no perfect. Married your girl, turn your in a mistress. The best for your girl, bringing everything, Chris. What makes some girl hard? You want still them candies? Now you're not disturbed. Feel your house happiness, cause you know. No matter where we go, no matter where we do.
logo on my flow mat. Courtside Chamberlain throwback match my Rolex. Everywhere I go, flex. Valet park on some low shit. Whole lot of smoke in that Rory, that thing post. Burning rubber, wearing cameras that was undercovers. Under pressure, made statements, turned on their brothers. Never judge you, but the streets will never love you. I wonder what it comes to in your brain for you to run to. Once the haters, handcuffers and maces. Call us dumb niggas, cause our culture is contagious. Third generation South Central gang bangers. I live long enough to see it change. Think it's time we make arrangements. Finally wiggle out they mace. Find me out in different places. And the spoke by the door, this the infiltration. Double back dressed in blue laces. Real player, got the game from the East End. Love my city, say it and I 
lot of love, then I wouldn't be here. Niggas preaching unity, why they exclude me? I don't spot the scrutiny, I just keep doing me. I don't need no jewelry, you're all the newest things. Long as I could pull up on DTB and get you and beat. Baby took my order, I said money, power, respect. Keep a third of fries and a side of color queens. I think I be tired, I want my piece of the pie. You see the look in my eyes, music is getting me high. Like a wheelie, we don't need no money for the freaky. No comparison, no competing And when she wish I could, I come true When she wish I could, I come true Pull up and I do the body good, yeah She said, nigga, I wish you would, yeah When she wish I would, I come true, yeah Take a song on my chest. Used to blow up when I show up, a comment couldn't interrupt. I was chilling overseas with my brother Kelly King at the club in Abu Dhabi. Must have ordered everything. Told her, baby, bring me love and tequila. She said, Why you make me wait so long to see ya? No matter how much I give, it was never enough. She wanna go 24 7 days a week, so all night, you can get it all day. I can reach your mind, bet you wish that I could stay, yeah. But I gotta get up and get active Just support me on my passion Girl, I'ma circle right back, yeah For the repeat We don't need no money for the freaky, yeah I'm the most seeky No comparison, no competing, yeah And when she wish I could, I come true When she wish I could, I come true Pull up and I do the body good, yeah She said, nigga, I wish you would, yeah Wish you wish I could, I come true, yeah. Come true, wish come true, wish come true, wish come true, yeah. Come true, wish come true, come true, yeah. Come true, and wish you wish I could, I come true. Nigga, I wish you would, yeah Wish you wish I would, I come true, yeah Come true, yeah. Wish come true Wish come true, yeah. Wish come true, yeah Come true Wish come true, yeah Come true, yeah Come true Season after season Thank you. 
Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net.